Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. You say, hey, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? And they're like, well, I was baptized. And I'm like, how old? And he's like, well, you know, two weeks or four days or eight days or whatever it is. Listen, that's not a biblical baptism, and here's why. Because it's impossible for a baby to believe in Jesus, to repent of sin, or receive him as Lord and Savior. That's biblical baptism. Part two of Jesus, the Suffering Servant. We're looking at the first 20 verses in the book of Mark, and we start today in Mark 1, verse 9, focusing on Jesus' baptism and his first acts of ministry, a ministry that would lead Jesus to the cross and complete a magnificent work. Well, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, verse 9, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Jesus comes to be baptized. John's confused by this because it's clear to John Jesus is, well, uh, above him when it comes to spiritu spirituality and such. They're cousins, by the way. They know each other well, born only months apart. And John says to Jesus, I should be being baptized by you. But Jesus says, let it happen. Now, Mark's not telling any of this. But we have to have some of this filled in. I'm not going to tell you all the things that John, Mark doesn't share. or We might as well not teach Mark. But I do want to at least make clear why he's doing things the way he's doing and what he's saying. So Jesus says, hey, this needs to happen, John. So John complies and Jesus is baptized by John. Before we look at the circumstances surrounding that, though, it's important to note that Jesus was identifying with us first in his birth because he was born just as we are. It was a, a miraculous birth, but natural in the sense that he was born of a real human and he himself was a real person. And then he had, of course, all the things that babies need. They needed to be done for him. He was helpless as a baby. And then he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, of course, Mark again jumps over all of that. But Jesus identified that's what he was doing when he became one of us. He emptied himself and came down, Philippians tells us, Paul writing to the Philippian church, and became one of us. Emptying himself to become a servant, going even further down to the death on the cross. And then he identifies with us in baptism. Baptism was what? A baptism of repentance. It required confession and turning from sin. Jesus had nothing to confess. There was nothing for him to repent of. So what he was doing is identifying with us in baptism. Then he ultimately identifies with us on the cross. So at his birth, at his baptism, uh, different times in his life. We'll look at his temptation in a moment. And then ultimately on the cross where he died for our sins was buried and rose again. So it's all about him identifying with us. Christian baptism is us identifying with him. We obey him because he said, believe and be baptized, repent and be baptized, receive and be baptized. And uh, this sort of addresses a major issue. 
because I talk to people all the time and, and you can almost tell what, you know, religious upbringing. If you say, hey, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? And they're like, well, I was baptized. And I'm like, how old? And he's like, well, you know, two weeks or four days or eight days or whatever it is. Listen, that's not a biblical baptism. And here's why. Because it's impossible for a baby to believe in Jesus, to repent of sin or receive him as Lord and Savior. That's biblical baptism. And so uh, I, you know, I don't think it does any harm, but it doesn't do any good. And without getting into the reasons for it, and I'm aware of them, important to say when we're baptized, we're obeying the Lord. We're identifying with Jesus in that baptism. How so? Buried with him in baptism, raised in newness of life. Just as he identified with us in his baptism, we identify with him in ours. We're not literally burying people there in the pool, though there are some wives who say, could you hold them down just a little extra long? I mean, you know, till he's gasping or what? You know, it's not going to help. Because it's the repentance that changes a person, not some outward sign of repentance. And by the way, that's another issue when it comes to Christian baptism. Baptism isn't essential for salvation or the thief on the cross couldn't have been saved. It's not a means of salvation or everyone who was ever baptized would be saved. It is a testimony that I have been saved by Christ, saved by grace, through faith in him, that not of ourselves, not of works, lest any boast. And baptism is, in fact, a work. But it's one he commands. Last issue I want to bring up as it would relate to us identifying with him in baptism, us obeying him in baptism. If you haven't been baptized since giving your life to the Lord, and you're like, well, I just don't know if I can do it. I can't get up in front of everybody or I don't want to. I look horrible in a bathing suit or whatever your excuse is. Listen, wear a big old robe or something. We don't care. But, but here's, here's the thing. If you can't obey Jesus in something oh so simple, be baptized. How are you going to do the hard things? It's the easiest thing he ever asked us to do. What are the hard things? Oh, I don't know. Love your neighbor. How about love your enemy? You know, pray for them, do good to them. Listen, he asked hard things of us. We may have to lay down our life for him and even living our lives for others in order to please him. Those things are a lot harder than obeying the simple command to be baptized. Well, we have Jesus' baptism here, having said all that. Immediately, verse 10, there's that word, as Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parted. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's a side note, but an important one. This is one of the clearest pictures in Scripture of the Trinity. And you will find if you read Genesis 1, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in creation. If you look at a salvation story, you'll see that no one comes to the Father but by Jesus, but no one comes to, the, to Jesus unless the Father draw him, and no one's convicted of sin unless the Spirit convicts them of sin, of righteousness, 
and judgment to come. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in creation. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in salvation. We see the three together here. And it's one of those times where, where the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and remains upon him. That was the sign to John that Jesus was the one. This is when John realizes Jesus is the promised Savior, the Messiah. All his life he'd known him. He knew he was different. He knew he was special. He didn't know he was the Christ the son of the living God until that moment. And from that point on, he begins to say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, last issue as it would relate to, um, you know, Jesus baptism. We, we see here who Jesus is, the father's beloved son, his only begotten son, Loved by him and pleasing to him, pleased with his obedience, and then the Father's call and plan for his life. I mentioned that baptism is an act of obedience, that baptism is a public testimony of our faith in Jesus. It's important to say baptism cannot save us from our sins. It is a testimony that we have been saved and here's why. 1 John 5, 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So I wouldn't trust in your religious heritage. I wouldn't trust in some religious act that you've been a part of. I would only trust in Jesus. So when we stand before the Father, you want to hear, well done, and enter in. We're accepted in Christ Jesus Look at Ephesians' first couple chapters. Well, great victories, and this was one, often followed by great difficulties. Tests, trials, temptations, and Jesus again identifies with us choosing to suffer all we go through and demonstrating in doing so what submission to the Father looks like Practically, immediately, there's that word, verse 12, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Matthew and Luke share the same phrase, but the word is much softer. It says the Spirit led him. There's a difference in leading someone and driving them. Mark is saying, no, this was more aggressive. This was more intense. He's there in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered to him. Now, Mark's very lean on details, obviously, here. But Matthew and Luke tell us that those 40 days, Jesus was fasting. And if you've never fasted or you don't know much about fasting, it's important to know this. When someone fasts, after a few days, you lose your appetite. Makes it easy after that. First, it's like torment, you know, you're fasting, it's the first day, you smell somebody barbecuing, not somebody barbecuing, someone barbecuing something next door, and uh, yeah, that's a bad image. But anyway, um, so, so what happens is after a few days, you lose that sense of hunger, 
And I have some experience with this. Pam and I were of that hippie clan back in, in Laguna Beach back in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And, and all our friends fasted and we did it. And all of us ate sprouts and, you know, avocado sandwiches and all that healthy stuff. We were so down on meat. Now, you know, it's like I used to have that bumper sticker, you know, love animals, don't eat them. And I could just scratch that one part out and change it to say, I love animals because I eat them. But, but it's a whole different thing now. I had a close friend who fasted only on carrot juice and ended up looking a little bit like our president. So uh, literally turned orange from fasting. And so uh, I don't know how it happened to him, but, but uh, anyway, that does happen. Here's why this is important, because it actually does go somewhere. When Jesus was done fasting for the 40 days, it says he was hungry. That means he really needed to eat. And when Satan comes with the first temptation, it's the only one of the three I'll share. He says, if you're the son of God, and we know if means since there, he's not questioning is Jesus the son of God. He knows Jesus is the son of God. He was created by Jesus and for Jesus. He was a worship leader at the throne of God early on before the fall before he fell. And so all of that to say, he says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus reveals to us how to overcome temptation. It's simply to know the word, to believe it, and to obey it. He says, it is written. And you need to know when tried or tested or tempted, what does the Bible say about this issue? And if you know it is written, well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you know that, then, well, that's what Jesus is saying. That's not going to happen because here's what the word says. I do want to say in all three temptations, Jesus quotes the word. But he didn't have to. I really believe he did that for our sake. So he's saying, here's how to do it. Here's how you overcome. Here's how you succeed. So his temptation by Satan, who is a real entity, a real uh, spirit. He's deadly. He's an enemy. He's an accuser. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a murderer. He's called the destroyer. And so, again, I want to do my best to follow Mark's lead, at least after this study, and keeping things short, you know, and, and then, but, you know, just going from issue to issue, maybe a few you know, grammatical things, a little bit of historical background, but mostly we just want to see what Mark has to say and consider why. But, but we need to be able to apply some of this. And we only have a little bit more. And, and so um, we're only going to verse 20, two short uh, things after this one. But, but here are three things you need to take home and chew on as it relates to temptation. First of all, temptation to sin is not a sin. I'll say that again because some of you well, you don't really know this. Temptation to sin is not a sin. How do I know? Jesus was tempted in how many ways? Always, yet without sin. 
So that means when James says we're all tempted in so many ways, then no temptation is, is unique to us. It's common to man. It's not a sin to be tempted. If you're tempted to be angry, if you're tempted to be, be you know, immoral, if you're tempted to be whatever it might be, that temptation comes. You can ask God to, to cleanse your mind. Here's how I do this. I like, I like, I know it's not you, Lord. You would never give me that thought. And so if it's me, forgive me. If it's the devil, rebuke him. But either way, I want to have a clear head and, and, and a, a soft heart and a right, a right spirit. And, and so cleanse me, Lord, and make things right. I confess it because I want to be free of it. But it's so important to get this when you begin to entertain the idea. See, when David saw Bathsheba, he could have averted his eyes. He could have said, send someone, send a note to that gal. She really needs some, you know, she needs to bathe inside or whatever, you know. You know the story of David. The point is he didn't divert his eyes. He looked at her. He gawked at her. He gazed at her. He began to, to play in his mind what it would be like to get to know her. And all that led to his downfall, one he never overcomes. So temptation itself is not a sin. Just don't entertain it and certainly don't act on it. Second thing, temptation can be overcome. And the key, again, already shared this for you, is to know the word of God to apply the word of God, to obey the word of God. It is written, work for him, and it will work for you. Third and last thing, temptation is a pass-fail test that always leads to a testimony. And here's what's going to happen. If you fail, you need to own that. You need to confess that. You need to make sure you're not justifying or rationalizing or blame shifting, lying to others, lying to yourself. You're not a victim in your sin. You're a victor if you overcome. And even if you failed, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if you fail, confess it, ask forgiveness for it, know he'll cleanse you, forgive you, and deal with you as if that never happened. If you pass, be careful, because it's so easy when we do right, when we overcome and we look around and say, wow, look at all of them failed and I passed. It's so easy to become proud and arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental. That's what was happening to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. So give God the glory. Testify to his grace, to his mercy. Declare that he is able to make you stand and others stand as well. Well, John, after all the good he does, after living in the wilderness, after living as a Nazarite, after baptizing people, telling everyone he met, repent, he is put in prison. And Jesus came to Galilee after John's put in prison. Verse 14, Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
James Edwin Orr wrote a lot on revival. He said he believes in our generation that the word repent is a missing word in the gospel today. The people aren't hearing it and they're not doing it because they're not hearing it. And then some are hearing it and still not doing it. To repent means to change your mind, to change your heart and to change your direction. So John preached repentance till he got to prison. How did he end up in prison? He told Herod the king to repent. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Repent, he said. And of course, Herod didn't. And John ends up imprisoned. And John ends up beheaded. In between his ministry of identifying Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He dealt with his disciples' confusion. The crowds were leaving and going to him. They're like, man, we used to have all the crowds. Now they're over there. And he's like, he must increase and I must decrease. He was explaining to them what we need to get for Jesus to really live through us. There needs to be more of him and less of us. So now Jesus follows in John's footsteps. That was the plan. The forerunner and now the Christ, both preaching repentance and believe the gospel. Finally, he calls four disciples and I conclude with this. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then, uh, of course, immediately it says, verse 18, they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. All four heard the call. All four forsook all. All four followed him. Later, Jesus will say to them, not just those four, but all his disciples. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and ordained you to go forth and bear fruit that will remain. Oh, it's so important. He's not saying they had no choice, as some suggest. He's saying, I chose you. And they did get to choose, am I going to follow or am I not going to follow? In John 6, 6, 6, we made reference to it recently. Many of his disciples walked away and followed him no more. Reasons for it. Read John 6 later, the whole chapter, and you'll make some sense of it. But here's what we need to know. Someone can say yes and then, well, not really follow through. Or say yes and follow for a while and then wander away or fall away. And, and, and so he choo chooses these to represent him. And each of them did something we have to do, forsake all to follow him. We don't all quit our job or, or, or not take care of our families. They were in a position, each of them, to say, okay, dad, it's your, your business. And, and the others, somebody's going to fish. But they're going to spend the rest of their lives fishing for men. Well, I mentioned it earlier. I conclude with this. He who has the son has life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So here's my question to you today. Do you have the Son and does He have you? Have you heard His call on your life? Follow me and I will make you what I created you to be. In today's study, Pastor Sam talked about temptation. And it's important to know that becoming a Christian does not mean an end to temptation. Now that will happen when we are resurrected and we are raised incorruptible by sin. But until then, we should not expect to be completely free of it. However, here is a comforting scripture on the subject. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you may endure it. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.